land is me Rock, water, animal, tree They are my song My beings here where I belong This land owns me From generations past to infinity Welcome to another episode of Law of the Land nature reparations through an indigenous lens my name is sean appo from the aboriginal carbon foundation i'd like to start by paying my respects to the Yuan people um, working and staying on their lands at the moment and i'd like to thank them for letting me um, travel and, and work on their country for the last week and a half today we have mr joe morrison uh, joining us from the indigenous land and sea corporation Joe, do you want to start by just uh, telling us who you are, where you're from, and who's your mob? Yeah, sure. Um, thanks, Sean. Uh, well, I'm Joe Morrison. Um, I come from and I grew up on Dugaman country in the Northern Territory. Um, also have connections into the Torres Strait with our Mualgal peoples. But I, uh, I, I grew up in a little town called Catherine and, you know, spent most of my life there. Um, uh, still rooted in that place um, and rooted to that that country, that that soil, and the importance of the country and uh, the spear grass, uh, and also the river and the springs that are abound in that country. So um, that's where I come from. I'm uh, now, fortunately, uh, on the lands and waters of uh, Wadawurrung people in in Victoria. So I'm very very blessed to have been on many Indigenous peoples' country. Um, and uh, pretty happy being on what a run country at the moment. Excellent. So I, I thought we'd have a bit of a conversation today, but we might start from the ground and work our way right up to the policy level, if that works for you. So, yeah. I mean, you've worked in a range of positions over many years, been directors on a number of different organisations. What are some of the current and future opportunities you see for traditional owners that can lead to self-determination? Yeah, it's a great question. I mean, it's uh, and I've been blessed to have been a part of the whole sort of caring for country movement since what I think its inception was in the uh, in the '90s in West Arnhem um, and uh, working working through at the ground level, sort of talking to you know a lot of senior people that walked out of their country, worked with those people and conversed with them about um, what they thought was important for the future. Um, uh, and that's kind of shaped my life, I suppose. And in many ways, uh, when we talk about uh, Indigenous, you know, economic self-determination and other forms of self-determination, it's for me, it's always come back to people's people's place uh, and the importance of those local voices and actions and and uh, their sort of realities, um, as opposed to anything at a more regional and or national level. So it's my work and my life's work, I guess, has really been about supporting people who are living on their country or people who want to return to their country, finding solutions in various ways, and we can talk through some of those. Um, but it's always been about them and that place that they come from and also the need for them to remain rooted and connected to those places. Um, I just think that um, it's not well understood in modern thinking about the importance of people's connection to their country. And, I, I, you know, I'd always argue that the disconnection that we see happening 
leads to poor outcomes for both people and the environment. And we're seeing that play out in the climate space, but also some of the big fires that occur in southeastern Australia are a classic example. But uh, we also have you know enormous levels of extinction. So I think when we talk about the economic determination, it's obviously something that's a work in progress and more, most importantly needs to be driven and known by people who uh, are responsible for their country. Yeah, I think, you're, I think you're spot on there. And we've seen a lot of government initiatives over the many years, like Closing the Gap has now been around since 2008. Um, you know, we've had revised targets in the last few years that talk about taking people back on country and work on country and things like that. But um, I think there is a lot more opportunity to be able to get traditional owners back onto their country and engaged with their country. And, um, you know, that's some of the work that we're trying to do through the Aboriginal Carbon Foundation and through the whole nature reparations work and the caring for country work that you've been involved in for a long period of time as well. What kind of, um, is there any more capacity building work that needs to be done in that space to be able to make the most of those opportunities? I think there's always a need for people to understand the nature of uh, what the opportunity is and for them to build their, their internal capability to be able to seize that moment. I reflect back at the time when we established Nalsma in the late 90s uh, and got it going with the fire projects in Northern Australia, which were really just about getting people reconnected with their country and using fire as a means to do that. Um, uh, and, and so capability development, in my mind, is always going to be there. And if you're talking about um, new enterprise opportunities that help sustain people's cultural uh, connection and, and also their uh, economic self-determination, then um, you're always going to have to speak to people in place and you're also going to have to be talking about the kinds of capabilities required to be able to sustain those enterprises. So I, I don't think capacity building, uh, and again, it probably comes to who's saying it and, and what's the context of why people are saying that. But I think from my experience, there's always a need uh, on both sides, some Aboriginal and Indigenous sides, but also non-Indigenous to understand the particular nuances associated with Indigenous identity and their connection to country. Yeah, I, many years ago, well, I come from a public health background and worked with a lot of Aboriginal community control health services across the country. And um, what I saw in a lot of those places were um, a lot of non-Indigenous non people occupying those higher levels of the organisation. And in my short amount of time in carbon farming and sort of nature reparations, I see a very similar situation. And I feel like, like you, like you talked about earlier, that sort of knowledge transfer that, that needs to go on from Aboriginal communities to the non-Indigenous populations I see that not really occurring well in those kinds of organisations. And I also see that there is not so much of a sort of glass ceiling put on um, Indigenous people because, you know, you're an Indigenous man, you're the CEO of a big organisation. You know, our organisation has an Indigenous CEO. But I don't think that there's enough Indigenous people at those higher levels of um, management and governance in some organisations to be able to make sure that we're making the most of that organisation-wide capacity-building opportunity. Is that something you've seen over the years? Yeah, definitely. I mean, we are seeing more and more uh, Indigenous people come up through the ranks. And again, I think reconnecting 
after a period of hiatus away from the public sector in particular. But, uh, you know, we've, we've been through the ups and downs of uh, all forms of disenfranchisement from people being in leadership positions. And I think we're now seeing the regrowth of, of uh, that opportunity. But at the same time, there's, there's never enough, uh, you know, being only the second Indigenous CEO or, or general manager at the Isle ILSC after 27, 28 years really at the end of the day is not good enough. And so more needs to be done uh, to build those pathways and those streams of work so people can uh, not just come into these roles, but they come into the roles with um, real lived experiences too. So it's not abstract, I think really importantly. So we just don't have Indigenous people in charge of things for the sake of having Indigenous people. But I, I think it's really important that Indigenous people who go into leadership positions have a level of immersion uh, in the reality that Indigenous people uh, live so they can make informed decisions about certain things to do with uh, those those structures that they're in charge of. So I think it's really important, A, to have Indigenous leadership in those positions, but uh, I think it's also got to be um, with uh, some realistic experience for those people as well. So we've talked a little bit about the on-the-ground work that needs to be done by mob on their own country and some of the capacity-building measures to make the most of those opportunities. That's obviously going to take a level of investment so that we can maximise those those opportunities. Um, who do you think is going to make that level of investment? Well, I think there's, there's now an appetite around the place uh, for both uh, governments uh, and governments can never be seen to be the sole investor in anything in, in my book uh, but also we're seeing that in the private sector and, and the philanthropic sector as, as well so there's I think there's got to be a mix and depending on the maturity of the, the sector here we're talking about land and sea management and that I, I sort of say that this whole sector or industry is still maturing and hasn't really reached the point where um, it's entirely Indigenous owned and and spoken of, uh, but it's getting to the point where it is. I mean, the size of Indigenous country in Australia has grown proportionally large over the last 10 or so years, uh, but we still need to do a lot more, I think. Uh, I think governance and agency uh, at a local level uh, leading up, we've had, you know, 30 odd years of native title. Uh, I think we need to contextualise the last 40 years of land rights and native title and uh, marry that up with some of the things we need to get done in terms of uh, managing our country, but also finding economic solutions that are sustainable and akin to our cultural uh, obligations whilst we're able to um, turn a buck off it. So I think there's a number of things that people should think about in that context. I guess you've probably seen a similar story to what I've seen as well. Um, when it comes to investment in Aboriginal communities and Aboriginal programs, um, there's a level of uh, extra risk that seems to be added to some of those programs, and you know, there's a there's a there's a sort of non evidence based view that um, Aboriginal people are not good at looking after money and all of that kind of stuff. Like, how how in your view can we combat some of those um, poor attitudes that still remain? Yeah, again, that's you know, obviously uh, ensuring that there's there's a discussion and there's some real hard data to it, so it's not based on uh, you know, past uh, racist sort of tendencies and views about Aboriginal people um, because we see a lot of wastage uh, within the non-Indigenous sector and across a number of industries all the time. And so 
uh, it's obviously amplified when it comes to Indigenous people by particular media um, and other agents who are outspoken about, uh, you know, Indigenous self-determination. So I think we've got to keep chipping away and having those uh, good stories being told, uh, but also getting people to understand uh, the juggling act that Indigenous corporations and, and people have to play. It's not just a matter of running an organisation um, when you've got, for example, a prescribed body corporate on the date of title determination having to balance the uh, cultural and customary requirements of a particular group with the need to uh, respond to third parties, mining and gas, for example, but also trying to find, uh, you know, look down the road to a sustainable lens that can deal with the issues that they're facing around, uh, you know, social injustice, poor education and health, um, uh, alcoholism, those sorts of things. But I think importantly, it's got to be uh, owned and, and dealt with by uh, Aboriginal people. And we're going to need, you know, time to do that. We've got a long history and in some places, a continuation of this position going on. So there's a lot to deal with and dealing with the stigma of um, colonisation through the fact that uh, people believe that Indigenous people can't run their own affairs. I mean, we're having this national discussion about a voice at the moment. Part of that's filtering into that conversation as well. So um, even though we talk about uh, people and, and nature, it doesn't necessarily... Uh, quarantine that sort of view uh, in the space that we're talking about here too. So I think we've got to be sophisticated, we've got to be aware of it and we've got to um, uh, focus our attentions on our people and getting our work done, importantly. Yeah, I feel like um, Marcia Langton really belled the cat the other day when she sort of put it back on the media and said, you just can't let people say whatever they want to say about things. It's your job to actually look look through and see whether those views are actually evidence-based or not. And I feel like, you know, that's uh, that's the game of sort of political football that we have unfortunately been victim to for a long period of time. Someone can just sort of raise something without any context and, you know, before you know it, this room has taken off and got a life of its own. Yeah, but, um, absolutely. I think, yeah, I agree that Marcia raised some very valid points and, and points, unfortunately, that I, I don't think will go away anytime soon, but notwithstanding that. I mean, uh, when I grew up in Catherine, for example, in the 1970s, uh, you know, we were always concerned to ride around uh, the town in those days because of the attitudes that people had towards Aboriginal people, whereas uh, it's, uh, you know, a lot more safer in that context, uh, not so in others, but, um, you know, times are changing. People are becoming more aware of the challenges that Indigenous people are facing, and I think we've just got to keep keep on going and not be distracted by the noise. I think the other point you raised too about Aboriginal people working in organisations doesn't mean that they're still not part of their own community. And I guess for people who don't um, or haven't had enough uh, exposure to Aboriginal organisations working within their communities, it's a bit like um, the CEO of Westpac living in a community amongst all of their shareholders. Yeah. You know, you've got people who have who are not just who are not just um, people who you're providing services to and sort of employment opportunities to, but they're also family, they're also friends. You're engaging with them on that community level time after time, and it's it's a very difficult role, isn't it? To sort of yeah um, keep boundaries around that. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, uh, uh, I 
I'm a claimant and a native title claim back home that's been running for 24 years. So, you know, last year, late last year, I had to go back and work with my mob, take some time off from running the land corporation, land and sea corporation, and help help mediate uh, my group and, and the neighbours. So, you know, these are these are things that we don't talk about all the time, but, you know, that's going on in the background. And just because you've seen in the light of being, uh, you know, a, a, a nice, you know, good well-educated CEO running a corporation at the same time you've got to go home and wear these other wear these other hats. Have all the other arguments. All that kind to you either, so, you yeah. know. <laughs> exactly. Um, well, look, there's probably a lot of people who will listen to this who don't know a lot about native title. So given that you're actually going through it now, do you want to just give a brief summation of, of, of what that process has been like for your own mob? Yeah, sure. I'll, I'll give it a, a bit of a global context because the you know the job that I'm in is really important in that native title context too. Because um, you know I came to this role uh, after you know working 30 years in that sort of context around land rights, native title. You know, running the Northern Land Council, it's the largest land council in the country, and it's got a big native title practice. Um, but also, you know, the, the ILSC was born out of the native title debate and argument. Um, you know, it was born because of the uh, amendments that were put into the Native Title Act, uh, particularly around the inability for some groups to prove their continuous connection. Um, and so that's a very sad situation. But regardless, the ILSC has been established to assist particularly those groups that weren't able to meet those requirements. Um, and so, you know, we've got all these hurdles that we've got to run through, which is uh, in my mind, it's the story of native title because it's full of hurdles, it's full of challenges. Um, firstly, you've got to prove connection to a place and you've got to have continuous connection to that place. Uh, and so for us and Catherine, um, being dispossessed uh, in, well, starting to be dispossessed in the late 1800s, uh, it's a long, long time of dispossession and other Aboriginal groups coming into town, sharing that country with them, um, having to go through, uh, you know, massacres uh, and then uh, growing up in an era where, you know, we weren't, we weren't told uh, that you should espouse your Aboriginal annally. You, you've got to, you know, you've got to fit in with the, with the white people who at the time when land rights was coming into the Northern Territory, there was a lot of opposition. Um, and in that town that I grew up, there was a group called Rights for Whites that used to meet to, uh, walk through the streets of Catherine and oppose land claims, which they did in the, in the case of um, the Gorge or what's now called Nippalop. Um And that sort of, you know, really set the scene for, uh, I guess, us lodging our native title claim. Obviously, we couldn't uh, go down the land rights route because the land tenure was uh, not claimable. Um, so we went down the native title route and that was lodged 24 years ago. We've lost all but one of our senior old people. Um, uh, notwithstanding that, we're still here and we're still practicing and, and talking about it um, and working through the process. Having to deal with questions of identity um, and authenticity uh, are always difficult for people to deal with when you've uh, grown up in a society that hasn't been kind to Indigenous people and Indigenous identity and having to go to school with a lot of kids, both Indigenous and non-Indigenous, that were not kind to those people who were saying that this was their country. Um, you know, it was always, always going to be a, a challenge. So native title's hard enough um, for groups that have uh, remained 
uh, strongly intact and connected to their country. Um, and it's particularly difficult for those uh, with a, you know, a town or a city plonked in the middle of their country and then having to be subservient to the culture of the Westerners and having to put up with that day, to day in, day out. So it's, uh, it's challenging to um, prove that, but it's also challenging to remain connected to your country and to prove that you've uh, always um, performed your uh, laws and customs as they were handed down through the generations at a time when uh, people did everything they could to stop you from getting access to your country. So um, it's been a challenge and, you know, it's a, it's a good day today because uh, not far from where I am, the Eastern Ma here in Victoria have just had their land determined by the full federal court. So, you know, there are small wins. There's obviously been some appalling losses and, uh, you know, we, we talk about and turn to the Yorta Yorta case, which is ridiculous really when you understand how Yorta Yorta now have moved on from all of that and, you know, they're as strong as Indigenous groups as anyone else that I've come across, but they didn't meet that continuous uh, connection requirement. Um, so native title is uh, is one that it could either make groups or it could uh, destroy groups in my books. Um, and we've seen certainly a lot of groups that have really struggled with it, um, particularly in and around big settlements and towns and cities and so forth. I want to come back to two things you said, though, because I think they are really important. One is around old people, so we'll come back to that one. But I guess at a national level, when we have all of these native title determinations and all these groups getting native title, that feeds up at a national level to, you know, um, I think what I've heard you say is the Indigenous estate. Could, do you want to just give a little bit of information about how big uh, that Indigenous estate is and what kind of opportunities there might be there? Yeah, I mean, the, the term Indigenous estate is not one that I um, like all that much because it really places a Western lens on Indigenous tenure, which is very different, of course, to Torrens title, which is private and, and personal, whereas uh, Indigenous country is communal and collective, collectively owned. So, And there's a whole different decision-making process associated with that. But when we talk about the Indigenous estate, I mean, obviously, um, it was all Indigenous country and it was all owned and managed uh, prior to uh, and during the early period of settlement and colonisation. But we see the size of it now in Australia, uh, that is land that's either owned or, or managed um, or even places where there's a, a recognised right and interest in that place has been well over 54% now. Um, and that's just a terrestrial landmass. There's much work to be done around uh, freshwater and also uh, particularly marine or saltwater country. Um, and from my experience in Northern Australia, obviously saltwater country makes no difference really. It's, it's all country. There's no distinguishing between uh, land and water in the same way as that Westerners have separated land and water titles. Aboriginal people don't see it that way. Um, and so the size of that, uh, estate in, in Australia now is, is big. Um, and so that opens up all sorts of questions about what do Indigenous people collectively think about should be the future for themselves and that country and how does that sort of, how does that intersect uh, with, the, with the national good or the, you know, the national discourse and given we're having conversations about voice and treaty and truth, I think it's very timely to talk about uh, the role of Indigenous country and people who are 
on their country and managing their country because I've always said that they're they're not there doing it for themselves only. They they're doing it for everyone, um, and we see that at a global level where you, you think about Indigenous uh, people. The most special places left on the planet are places where Indigenous people have always managed those places. So I think I think um, Indigenous estate is very important. Um, it's probably getting to a point where there needs to be some sort of national conversation and a gathering uh, of Indigenous people involved in that space to start thinking about what the future might look like and, and not leave it up to governments and their funding programs to determine uh, what Indigenous self-agency or determination in that space might look like. Well, you're not alone in saying things like that. I've heard that from a few people um, recently, so I think we should uh, definitely try and put that at the top of our priority list to see if we can make that happen. Yeah. I guess the other thing about, so getting back to talking about the old people. So, you know, I'm sure you and I share a very similar um, worldview in that, like, we we were brought up by our old people. We were taught a lot of, a lot of our um, attitudes by our old people. Certainly recognise that I, I'm here standing on the shoulders of giants who sort of um, put me on the right path to be able to not just have a decent um, standard of living for myself, but to be able to make sure that I'm giving back to community, that I'm trying to provide other opportunities and I, I see you as being in a very similar position. Um, I was listening to a podcast this morning that was talking about The Voice um, and uh, Ken White said something very interesting. He said, look, a lot of people who were on that dice with the Prime Minister, Anthony Albanese, the other day, if this doesn't get up, then within you know 10 to 15 years, a lot of those people who are up there won't be around anymore. And you know, you're saying that in your own native title experience, there's only one elder left who was there at the start of this process. Like, what what kind of um, what kind of role do you see yourself having in that sort of transition period of being a sort of um, a link between the old people and the and the new generations and the and the new opportunities coming through? Yeah, no, I agree with you, Sean. That I think you know we're all here because of old people really at the end of the day the people that that stood up and fought but also the people that that didn't survive um, as well and uh, you know had a extremely difficult time when uh, settlers first arrived and um, you know I've always uh, wherever I've gone sought out old people and and made sure that they knew that I was there and paid respects to them Um, it's I think it's a it's an art form and level of respect that unfortunately um, is not in all of our um, meetings and gatherings so I always try and pay respects to old people just not saying it but also actually doing it and going to see them and so that's that's really important because um, you know old people were the people who had the knowledge they had their connection they had the stories um, and they also uh, had lived experiences and an ability to reflect on some of the things that have happened before but also to understand what some of the solutions might look like um, and so when I when I talk about old people, you know, I talk about them in, in that context as not just being uh, static, uh, but also constantly giving. And even after they're passed on, you know, their memories are alive and their energy is always with us. So I think it's really important that when we talk about what we do in the future, we're, we're doing it from that context of old people um, and the things that they've given uh, all of us, which I think are immense gifts to be able to speak about the sorts of things 
from their from their learnings, uh, but also contextualise. So, um, for me, old people and the notion of elders um, is one that's pretty significant, um, and that leads to you know a broader sort of conversation in my mind, really around um, this sort of disconnect between people and country. And I talk about it a, a lot, um, and I find as I get older, I'm sort of talking about it more and more. Um, uh, and I could see that there are a lot of people that just don't get it or probably don't want to get it. Um, and recently I was at a, a National Oceans gathering talking about that, and I could see that people are struggling with the concept of humanity being disconnected to nature. And so they talk about nature as being something that could be exploited all the time. And it's like, when when is humanity going to learn its lesson that you just can't continually exploit things, that you've got to, you've got to live within that? You've got to celebrate it and you've got to uh, understand and respect things and you've got to have some, you know, customs and ability to be able to perform your connection to that. Um, and so people, I think, um, don't really understand that. I think there's a lot of work that I need to do in that space. Spending a lot of time in the last 30 years talking to people about ranger programs and carbon and the importance of that. But I think for me, it's now a bit of a new sort of journey of trying to reconnect people into the nature discourse. So we don't we don't talk about those two things as separate. Same in the nature reparations uh, market that's been established here in Australia. Saying to the minister, you, you can't talk about that as being something that's just got to be fixed, and it could be fixed by anyone because Indigenous people have got a very unique connection to the. Australia's nature and they've got to be embedded in it and you just can't um, afford, you know, farmers or anyone else, as good as it sounds, to have the same level of connectivity to places as Indigenous people because it's just not appropriate. So um, I think for me there's a, there's a lot of work to be done in that space, Sean. Well, that brings us nicely onto the next question, which is about, so if we take it up to the very top level, what kind of policy recommendations would you make to the various levels of government to be able to enable some of the solutions that we've spoken about today, trying to get more um, people, more mob back on the country working in this space? Yeah, and I, and I reflect back at the, the time that we were um, working at Nailsma and, you know, we got, the, we got these big fire projects going in northern Australia and then we launched into the carbon abatement work and got that first methodology approved. Um, and so what we were doing, we were connecting up people who are on country actually doing things, uh, and they were doing a whole lot of things, that sort of intergenerational transfer of knowledge. They were learning about fire in the Western context, but learning it about it from their old people. Um, they were connecting with other Indigenous groups. Uh, we were also doing the research, so we were running all of the research work. It wasn't done by you know CSIRO away from people so we were doing that so the researchers understood what indigenous fire management meant uh, and then we were also you know doing all the policy work so finding avenues and new mechanisms by which that could be put into play and obviously at the time it was a carbon farming initiative and then that morphed into all these other policies so I think um my view is that you just can't do one. You've got to do all of those things together and you've got to do it in a way that sort of bounces off each other. The research bounces off Indigenous people. Indigenous people bounce off the research and the policy work. Um, 
at the same time we were doing that work, we were also um, doing the work around informing the Rudd government at the time when they came in and CDP was being abolished to establish the ranger programs. So, you, you know, you've got a workforce, you've got a, pe- a body of people that are hungry to get back on their country. You've got this research opportunity and policy lever to pull. Uh, and so all those things were sort of lining up. And, I, you know, I think that was kind of a unique opportunity, but there will be other opportunities as well as we sort of go along. And I think um, my lesson is that you just can't do one thing and leave, you know, the policy work to someone else. We need Aboriginal people in Parliament House informing ministers about legislation and the policies that they're putting through. We need to be uh, debating with the public about the importance of this, that you can't not have fire. You've got to have more fire and as much as possible, for example. And uh, you, you need to think about that in the context of determination and prosperity for people who are living at a local level. So there's a range of things that I, you know, I've sort of learned over the years that are really important to bring together. And I think um, having some Indigenous organisations with the ability and agency to be able to do that and not be contextualised by what the governments think um, you should be doing, that could be just, you know, giving some range group a bit of, a, you know, support for fire management when, in fact, there's all this other stuff that needs to be done as well. So that's a bit, you know, it's probably a bit of a PhD thesis in some ways, but um, that's kind of my thinking um, off the top of my head in a snapshot. Is that your pitch for a portfolio within The Voice? Oh, not at all. I mean, I'm I'm quite happy to sort of sit quiet these days. I'm, um, I, I, you know, there's lots of lessons and there's, there's lots of young emerging uh, leaders that could come and contribute as well. But I do think that... Um, you know, we should we should learn from the past. Aboriginal people talk about it all the time, and there's obviously space for that in the voice and treaty negotiations as well. Well, Joe, it's been an amazing uh, conversation, and thanks for spending some time with us. Um, is there anything that you would like to add before we wrap up? No, just just finally, I, I you know I think um, you know people like yourself and Rowan and and myself that have been around sort of doing this work, and I know we're all. We're all trying to find a little space for ourselves. Um, probably less so me. I'm feeling like I'm pretty old. I just want to get out of it, to be honest. But know that I can't. Um, so I think it's really important that uh, organisations like Nalsma and the, the Foundation, ABC Foundation, and those sorts of organisations continue because um, longevity is really is a, is a really uh, important thing for Aboriginal people. Uh, when you ha- keep changing things like governments do, it's becoming pretty disruptive so uh, seeing faces that are familiar having the trust um, and also having people that are working at various levels like you guys are starting to do now I think it's really important Um, we all make mistakes along the way but I think if you're able to sort of um, understand and and manage those things and and move on from them uh, I think it's really important but at the end of the day I think my key message is you know remain uh, rooted in country and people Um, that's probably the most important thing all of us don't um, don't let ourselves get disconnected from what goes on you know every day on country it's really important that we we have that but we're also doing the important uh, negotiations policy advice and all that sort of stuff as well that sounds like a great place to end so uh, mr joe morrison thank you so much for your time today thanks sean and uh, good luck thanks mate This land is me
This has been another episode of Law of the Land, Nature Reparations Through an Indigenous Lens. My name is Sean Apo from the Aboriginal Carbon Foundation. This podcast is produced by Eli Corliss.